left fielders. Welcome to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. Our community is focused on networking and education to help people invest passively and think differently. Let's go. Why do some people become multimillionaires in real estate? Others go bankrupt. Here's one that's still hot in the oven. Why do some folks lose everything in cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin? And then there's other guys and gals buying islands in the Caribbean right now. Since you are here listening to this podcast, there's a good chance you're investing with a group of people. Whether you're investing with family or friends or like-minded people in the left field investors community, group investing is a strategy that can get you into more deals, help you diversify, and go beyond what you can achieve by yourself. Before TribeVest came along, it was difficult to overcome all the hurdles associated with group investing. It was basically a strategy reserved for the wealthy. Not anymore. Now, TribeVest helps your group with everything from incorporation, collaboration, banking, and equity management tools all in a single place. So you can focus on building wealth with the people you know, like, and trust. I'm using TribeVest for all five, now six, of my investor tribes. It's a game changer. Check them out at TribeVest.com. You are listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast, powered by TribeVest. The mission of Left Field Investors is to build a community of like-minded individuals interested in creating financial freedom through passively investing in real assets that generate real cash flow. In this podcast, Jim Piper will interview passive investors, syndicators, and others who will share their journey with a focus on helping the passive real estate investor learn and become part of the Left Field community. This is Paul Shannon from Red Hawk Real Estate, and you're listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field Podcast. I'm excited today to have MC Laubscher with us. He is the Cashflow Ninja. He's a cashflow specialist and host of the top-rated investing podcast, Cashflow Ninja, as well as the, his new podcast, Cashflow Investing Secrets. He's the president of Producers Wealth and the author of a book I just read, The 21 Best Cashflow Niches. It's a great book. I recommend you check it out. MC, welcome to the Passive Investing from Left Field Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Looking forward to this, Jim. I am too. I've listened to your podcast for a long time, so it's great to have a chance to chat. The way I like to start is if you can kind of give us your journey. How did you get here financially? How did you get into cash flow investing? And just kind of tell us how you, how you got to where you are today. Absolutely. So I've been in the US for about, well, 20 years. Time flies when you're having fun. I am originally from South Africa when I came here the first thing that stood out to me, and I traveled quite a bit before that and seen a couple of places in the world. And the one thing that just stood out is this is just an incredible place that allows upward mobility like I couldn't believe it. You could really just come here with the right mindset, the right work ethic, and the sky is the limit or even unlimited, right? There's no limit to what you can create and produce here. And I just saw it as just a, a place where incredible opportunity exists and it still does. And then I played in a sports league here. And when a lot of folks, when they travel for sports, they either get into video games or card games and that kind of stuff while you're traveling, whether it be bus or by plane. I was always very interested in history and economics. So I started like reading a lot about economics and history. My mom actually gave me the book Rich Dad, Poor Dad by Robert Kiyosaki to read. And then I just was fascinated with money, investing, economics, because it kind of like was the missing piece that I needed 
with my history and, and economics part of it. So I really just deep dive into that, but I took action right away. So I purchased my first property about, yeah, now 20 years ago. So in 2001, beginning of 2002, started in single family. Actually, it was, a, it was more like a condominium. That was my first deal. And I still remember after I purchased it and folks were, I got the tenants in there, they were paying rent. I paid all of the expenses associated with it. Couldn't believe that there was money left over and it was cash flow. Right. The 22-year-old myself version of myself looked at this and go, oh, this is incredible. How many times can I do this? I read the book. I've studied some other books on it. I took action. And of course, as every single investor will tell you, school is about to start for me, right? Took me on my journey. I started off as a, as a real estate investor. I worked actually for a friend in multifamily. And this was another aha moment that I think would be very, very valuable for your your listeners. I was working, literally started from the ground up because I was still playing sports at the at time. So you can't have a stable career doing that. So I was working for one of my friends. His family owned a ton of multifamily on the north side of Chicago, huge portfolio. And I started literally at the bottom just doing maintenance, cleaning the property, painting, helping with apartment turnovers, leasing, to eventually doing property management, collecting rent, marketing, all that kind of stuff. And then I got my broker's license. I was part of the acquisitions team for a lot of other properties that they were looking at. And I remember like chasing this one investor. I probably chased him around for six to eight months because I knew he had like three or four properties, probably like 200, 250 units to sell. And I just couldn't get a hold of them. And I still remember going in early one day into the office, the broker's office, like 7.30-ish. I got in there and that person walked out of the, the head broker's office. He just sold his entire portfolio on a handshake deal. And it, it just, a light bulb moment for me. I looked at this and I'm like, wait a second. There's a whole different dimension to this <laughs> game of investing here. Like I've been playing checkers, there's chess. And essentially, what I realized is that every single person that had real estate, number one, or number two, wanted to sell or wanted to buy on the north side of the city of Chicago, would that would be their first stop right there is in that office. Because these folks are cash flow ninjas. They would either buy the property, flip it to someone that they knew would buy it, or they would keep it and, and as a buy and hold. And I started to realize that, man, I can't compete with these guys. There's no way. These are cash flow ninjas. So how do I get to invest in the best deals with the best operators with these cash flow ninjas? And I'm like, oh, I have to partner with these folks. I can invest with them as a passive investor in some of the deals. And of course, I was working for them at that stage. So I could contribute some skills and capabilities and that kind of stuff to, to some deals. But it was a completely different switch in how I look at things. Um, and I've taken that kind of with me. You know, other parts of my journey started several businesses. I'm still invested in, in, in a lot of businesses. Most folks have heard about Cashflow Ninja, the podcast, which I'm the creator and host of, which I've been doing for six years, which I started with a $25 microphone. We're now in 180 <laughs> countries, millions of downloads. We're building out an education platform for that company. And then I have two other companies, Producers Wealth and Producers Capital Partners. So the one, we focus on a specific cash flow strategy, which involves life insurance. The other company, we're looking at raising capital for deals where I partner with more cash flow ninjas. But I think the big thing in my career was I started small and I just started building up. And then when I looked at how do I take this to the next level and grow and scale my, my investing, I realized that, man, there's a different game. How do I get to play in that game? 
attracts people. It's finding the right people that are cash flow ninjas in their space that I can partner with instead of being a weekend warrior and trying to compete with these guys. It's just, it's just not going to work. You know, the focus, obviously, the core of all of this is of businesses and in my investments has been cash flow. So that's been something that I've been very passionate about and talking about how to control cash flow in your own economy, your business economy, your investment economy, and how to grow that and how to diversify it. That's a fascinating story. You know, I think the key is you took action, right, on that that first condo. And if you hadn't done that, who knows what would have where you would have been. But I think that's part of the issue is people need to take action, careful action, but take action. And also, you know, the light bulb went on for me several years ago also about the cash flow, right? Because to me, if you're investing in something and it's not producing cash flow for you, you're not investing, you're speculating. And it took years of me investing in the stock market, me being a financial advisor, all of this education. And then not until I hit real estate did I see, oh, you can buy an asset and it sends you money every month. Like what what a fascinating concept. Yeah, that's the core focus of what I try to do still today within my own economies is I try to take active income because I do have active income from businesses, but I always try to convert that into leverage income, more passive income. So that hasn't changed at all. And I've seen that framework and I'm a big framework and model type of guy just from my sports background, but I see that in every cash flow ninja, as I call them, they, they all make their money somehow and they have ways of increasing and growing and scaling their income because they know that will drive everything else. They all position capital effectively and efficiently. Then they deploy it to generate more income for them. And then they also position for growth. They see trends, but then they protect everything with proper tax strategy, asset protection, and estate planning. But the game in that framework, as I mentioned it, is still, I mean, all these business owners, they all try to take that active income that they generate and turn it into passive income. And the best way to do that, of course, is through finding the right people because you can know there's no way that unless you're the cash flow ninja yourself in that specific niche, there's no way you, I mean, you can be invested, let's just say in five or six different asset classes and know everything that, the, that there is to know. And then also be an active participant in managing that investment. None of us are Superman or Superwoman, <laughs> unfortunately. Right. But if you find the right people, have immersed yourself, you understand the asset class, you understand all the risk factors that are involved, you understand how to manage risk, and then you found great people with a great track record that continue to do great things, you partner with them. And that's how you just stay focused on what you're doing by increasing your income, reducing your taxes, and then the excess capital can then be used to, to turn be turned into more passive income. Yeah, that's a great approach. And it's not super complicated. It's just, it's not necessarily as fast. It doesn't happen as fast as maybe you want it to. But if you start the journey, you will find within a number of years, that snowball turns into a giant snowball and it just keeps on rolling down that hill. But you got you to start and take action. I'd like to talk about the book, 21 Best Cash Flow Niches. I, I read it in the past week. And I love it because it talks about all these different asset classes, it describes it, and it tells you the pros and cons of each. I also, it kind of hit at my shiny object syndrome where, okay, great, now I have six other asset classes I have to go after because now I know about them. But can you talk a little bit about the book? What made you write it? And, and how did you find all this information? Yeah, one of the things that I've realized after interviewing like over 700 cash flow ninjas now 
one of the main things is, and questions that I get from folks is, how do people make their money? Like, what is the one thing that you could take away from them? And then also the follow-up, and this is the question that I get over and over and over, what are some of the most interesting niches and investment opportunities that have been shared on your show? The answer to the first question is, there's just so many ways to do it. There's no one way. We live in a world where we're marketed to in a very maximalist way. Because our attention, we're, we're like, we have the collective attention span of, as, as a, of a net, right? As a society. <laughs> so that's why yes. marketers have to market to us in a very maximalist way. But in reality, it doesn't work that way. There's so many ways to generate wealth. Very similar strategies, to, regardless of the asset clause. So there's core things uh, for investors, but there's so many ways to do it. And then the reason for the book was, just to share an insight of some of the most interesting niches that have been shared on the show to give people a, a, an idea to diversify cash flow. Because one thing that, I, that I'm talking about quite a bit right now, because obviously we're going through incredible changes globally. We're at a, one of the most exciting times, I would say, on the spinning ball of dirt in human history. So many changes, fourth industrial revolution, which brings about a lot of economic changes, which then basically shows up in all different spheres of our life. But essentially, we're going through change. There will be massive disruption and there'll be massive chaos. So how do you protect yourself as an investor? Diversified income streams and a diversified cash flow portfolio. That's one way to do it, right? That's what the pros are doing. You know, Ray Dalio talks about it all the time. He's four seasons that he sort of positions his portfolio with. You could do the same thing as an investor in different asset classes and niches. So I wanted to give everyone sort of an insight of some of the best opportunities that there are and just give them an overview of what it is, some pros, some cons. And then if they wanted to deep dive into it and immerse themselves in a specific asset class, they can do so. But I just wanted to sort sort of put the smorgasbord out there and let people figure out what tastes good and for them personally or not. <laughs> yeah, no, it, that makes sense. I mean, we spend so much time in our community looking at the standard apartments, maybe mobile homes. We do some industrial triple net. There's self-storage. But some of these other ones, that, and you talk about all those in your book, but there's other opportunities too. And so I'd like to talk about some of the less well-known opportunities. You talked about parking garages, for example. How do you evaluate a parking garage opportunity? Where do you find it? Who owns it? How do you make money on it? And then is there any worry about people are taking Uber more? Maybe their self-driving cars or parking garage is even going to be relevant. So that was about six questions. <laughs> but can you talk a little bit about parking garages? I don't know why it fascinates me, but it's just something new and different. It's fascinating. It fascinated me too when I looked into this personally, because I had the same kind of perception, you know, that, wait a second, isn't the cars going to be like a thing of the past? Where's the hoverboard coming, right? <laughs> or the hovercraft or something. But actually, no, there's a huge demand for it. And not just in cities. Obviously, everybody that's ever been to a major city in the US knows, all right, parking is, I mean, that's a huge commodity. So that's very, very, very easy. There's a huge demand in cities. There always will be, even if it's self-driving. Cars, you've got to park them somewhere. And same with the Ubers and the Lyfts and so forth. There might be less traffic in there, but there's still a need for cars to be put somewhere. Airports is another thing. But now, obviously, there's a huge change across the U.S., and this is happening globally of where people live. It's starting to open up more opportunities in smaller cities to set up parking facilities. 
So yeah, there's still going to be a need for it. It's a very interesting business because essentially, if you think about it, how everything's moving to AI robotics, 3D printing, internet of things, 5G, it kind of fits in because you can pretty much run a parking garage with, with maybe one employee, right? Everything's automated and everything is operated through machines. Most of them are right now. We just took a road trip a couple of months ago. We parked in a park. There was no one there. <laughs> there was no one yeah. in the parking garage. You just parked your car after you took your ticket, paid it when you went out, and, and that's it. So very uh, fixed overheads, great margins, as de- obviously depending on where the, where the parking garage is. There's still some folks syndicating some of these deals out there. You can find them. But what I found in that asset class, like the prime, pristine, kind of like sought after spots, they're wrapped up. That's old money right there. They've been in families for a while now. But, and then there's a lot of folks uh, actually building new ones. So there's the older ones. We all know about them, the airports, the major cities and all that kind of stuff. That's pretty much wrapped up. Here and there, there's still an opportunity where somebody needs to sell because of a reason. They're syndicated. But I see a lot of folks building them out, which is interesting. It's a similar kind of concept. I would say you have to be very, very careful, obviously, what industry or what the other factors are. For example, if you were invested in a parking garage that was syndicated close to a nearby airport in 2020, it's probably not performed as well as any of the other assets because nobody's flying that much anymore, right? So that's just an example of things to think about. Shopping. If your parking garage is just where people go to shop, essentially, you might want to rethink that as well because... The way that I see it with my paradigm and worldview is a lot of stuff is going online. It's only started, right? It's like 11 or 12% forgot the exact number of all sales that are only online. So most people think already that that ship has sailed. It hasn't even, it hasn't even taken off yet. So you want to think about those things just with it, like any investment, but there's, you want to think about those things when you, when you look at this and then obviously find the right people that have been doing this for a long time, that has a track record that has successfully done these deals and continue to do these deals. Hey, Leftfielders. This is Julian McClurkin from TribeVest. I recently had the pleasure of sitting down with Jim Pfeiffer for a masterclass. I learned so much from passive investing to real estate syndications to how you can diversify your portfolio with a tribe. I also learned how this form of passive investing was only available to the wealthy. Until recently, if I learned a lot, you will too. Go to leftfieldinvestors.com and check out the masterclass button at the top or look up TribeVest on YouTube. I'll see you there. Let's talk about that. Not just with this asset class, but any asset class. How do you find quality sponsors, people that you can trust with your money? I know in our community, we've started saying, okay, we're going to mostly have it be referral-based, meaning I know you, I know, like, and trust you. You have invested with a sponsor. You introduced me. So now I know that sponsor. But if I don't know anybody who's invested in cell towers or parking garages, how do you find those syndicators? And then how do you, how do you qualify a syndicator? Yeah, that's a great question. Number one, it takes a lot of work, this, by the way. I love the referral one that you just mentioned. That's one that I personally personally have used. Great people that I know, like, and trust, chances are pretty good that they know other great people that I would like to get to know better and that I would eventually trust as well. That's very, very good. That's a great 
kind of shortcut. It's kind of shortcuts have negative connotations, but essentially that's what in the world that we're operating in right now, that's what people find valuable. Intellectual shortcuts, relationship shortcuts, network shortcuts, and so forth. And then there's the hard way. What I did too is I had a goal of speaking to four to five people a week, essentially, operators of the asset class that I wanted to go in. And I would interview them and I would get to know a lot about them, their background, the deals that they've done, the deals that they're looking to do, what markets they're in, their investments philosophy, their investment strategy, asking all the the questions that I have about a particular asset class and see how they answer them. Have they ever overcome a really bad situation, right? That's a very good question to ask because there are some syndicators that have. There is someone that I've known that at one stage, because they they were scammed, I mean, out of over, this was uh, seven figures of investors' money, they made every single person whole. Every sing- Now, that's character right there, because the easy route would be to just duck, put your leg, be- <laughs> your, your tail between your legs and run away. But that person actually made sure that they were going to make every single person whole and continued what they're doing. They stood up to adversity. So anyway, so that that's a very good character trait. That's someone that you know that's going to take care of your money. So I find out all these things, and I do background checks on them too. It's very simple to do a quick search online these days. Folks get lazy with that. Look everyone up, and of course, read everything that's there, but take everything with a grain of salt, because chances are if somebody's doing a lot of things and doing a lot of things well and are have done a, a ton of deals... The majority of folks would obviously love that person. Maybe there'd be one or two folks that they didn't. So that one or two people isn't necessarily a reason why you shouldn't do business with that particular person. And then, of course, take it with a grain. Of, take things with a grain of salt. I'll give you an example. If there's a disaster with, a, let's just say, a real estate property, and you have a preferred return, would you rather want someone to pause on preferred returns and fix the problem with the property and sort it out and eventually catch everyone up? and eventually turn that property into a great investment for everyone? Or do you want them to continue to pay it out and having basically compromising that that investment, right? So I've seen stuff online about folks, oh, they paused preferred returns and da, 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 da. da and then someone's like, but did they eventually b- make you whole? Yes. So, <laughs> yeah. so take everything with a grain of salt. But yeah, so I do all of those types of research on someone and eventually I watch them. I don't marry someone right away too. I watch them even after if I put them on my short list. I see what deals are coming out, what deals they're involved in, how they underwrite deals, especially right now. You'd be surprised. I get a lot of deals and I see folks underwriting deals. The first response to it is these folks must have never gone through a 2008, 2009 or 2010 to underwrite like this. So yeah, somebody that's been through a cycle, a full cycle too, is probably a, a good bet. Not that I, I'm saying I wouldn't go with someone that hasn't been through that. There's some great operators that you know are starting out and so forth, but make sure that they have people on their team or are part of teams that have seen a cycle and have seen the good, the bad, and the ugly of all of this stuff. And I think that that's really powerful, the, the, the watch them. You, know, you don't have to marry them right away because I know that sometimes when I talk to a new syndicator or new, new to me, I feel pressure that I need to get into the next deal that they present me because I just took up an hour of their time. But what you need to do and what I've tried to do now is just pause, right? Watch a few deals come through, underwrite a few of their deals and analyze them. And then after you become comfortable and you talk to them about a few deals, invest down the road. You don't have to do everything 
right now. And I think people sometimes feel pressure, like they have to take action. I mean, we, we always talk about you got to take action, but you know, there are certain actions you can pause. And then when it's a new syndicator, it's fine to just watch them and monitor them and get to know them before you invest. Yeah, don't feel pressured anyway. Don't also get sucked into FOMO. I prefer JOMO, the joy of missing out instead of the fear of missing out. So <laughs> I I'm love big that. on JOMO, especially right now. So one of the things that I do too personally, and I continue to do, and that's like all the ninja thing with cash flow is I always try to pursue excellence in my craft daily. I start with my dad, which is in martial arts. So I just get up every day. I try to study and I get better. And I never, ever, ever think that I know everything that there is to know. I am aware that I've constantly have blind spots and I'm aware that anything and everything could happen and catch you off guard and off surprise. So, and I study the greats and folks that are the men and the women in the arena, the Teddy Roosevelt sort of quote and raunt, but I study what they do and they have Jomo right now. Nobody's getting sucked into any direction or any investment because of emotion, because of the fear of missing out. This is a part of the cycle where it's okay. It's okay. There'll be, there'll be really good deals, but you don't have to chase them and you don't have to get sucked in them and you don't have to feel pressure and you don't have to have this emotional thing that drives that fear of missing out you know, in, inside everyone. We're all human. Right. We all have it, right? Well, yeah. And now I'm going to replace my FOMO with Jomo. That's fantastic. <laughs> I, I absolutely love that. I want to bounce back to a couple more asset classes, cell towers. I don't own a property that they can put a cell tower on. So how do I find a syndication opportunity for a cell tower? There's some fantastic syndicators out there. And by the way, this is something that I'm looking at closely, personally, and for many different reasons, right? This, by the way, could be a great diversification strategy for your real estate. Because think about their cell phone developments that you can invest as a passive investor through PPMs with an operator. And what they will do is they'll develop the whole cell phone tower. They will get at least, so your tenants are like all the major cell phone carriers, right? Verizon, T-Mobile, and Sprint, I think that merged, but those are your tenants. So from a cash flow diversification standpoint and a trend, if you look at trends with 5G, with the internet of things coming, do you think that there's going to be a need for more or less cell phone towers? Do you think cell phone usage will increase or will it, right. will, will it decrease? Of course, it's going to increase. We live on our phones. It's now a supercomputer, literally, that we're carrying in the palm of our hands. So the trend is huge. It's a great diversification strategy because regardless of what happens in the economy, you have leases with huge corporations, which are financially stable. And then, of course, your tenants are those folks. So you can find them same way you could find them online. You can interview them. You can ask them all these same questions. But I, again, would urge folks to just learn as much as you can about that industry. I share a couple of different business models in the book, too, within the cell phone industry, because there's different ways to go into this niche. Just like with every niche, there's a strategy, different strategy, and there's different parts of the process where you can position yourself as an investor. Okay. I want to do one more asset class, and then I want to want to switch to uh, talk about producer's wealth a little bit. Sure. But assisted living, right? Senior living. That's obviously people have been talking about the great tsunami for years. So can you talk about what you think about that opportunity and what part of it should we be considering? Because I know there's a lot of different niches you can go into within just that overall area. 
Yeah, it's a very, very interesting niche. And I've kept an eye on this. I haven't personally pulled the trigger and invested in that niche. And I've been looking at this for, boy, three, four, five years. There was a couple of things that was very, very interesting to me. And that's why I did consider it. One of the things, obviously, over the past two years is one of the reasons why I also wanted to see how this was going to play out in that asset class, particular asset class, and and how that was going to work out. I like the single, sort of the single family, the smaller opportunity business model. I like that one a lot, the residential assisted living facilities. Again, you have to know in business who your customer or your client is. You know, a mentor of mine used to say, you you either have folks that are shopping at Nordstrom, folks that are shopping at Target, and folks that are shopping at Walmart. All these stores do great. They all sell, like, for example, shirts. They just sell them to different customers and clients. You have to understand because they all have different needs. They have different expectations, and they have different, obviously, financial capabilities. Same in this niche. So I find that that residential assisted living facility is a good one because, number one, again, the folks that are going to pay for it are paying out of pocket, most of them. It's a different clientele. It's more of a Nordstrom kind of prospect that you're catering to. So you have to be aware of that. You have to be aware of the business opportunity that goes with it too. And also the in-home nursing kind of thing in that niche, those businesses are going to do well. But I like the residential part of it too. Not that there's anything wrong with the commercial properties, the larger properties, but it's fascinating stuff. I learned a lot from Gene Garino that sadly passed away in that niche. He was quite a quite a pioneer. And he was one of the, the, the people that actually created awareness around this asset class, right? And this particular niches. Yeah, I agree with you. I like the smaller and rather than the big box nursing homes or assisted living facilities that feel like a hospital when you walk in, it's the ones where, you know, maybe they only have eight or 16 beds and it's almost a residential house that they retrofit to, to fit that. That seems to be a really good niche to go after because like you said, the maybe the kids are paying for it and they want to put mom or dad in a, in a nice home rather than, you know, where like where my grandma went was a big box and it was the nicest place we could find, but there just weren't those options. So this new option seems to be, uh, seems to be where, where I think it's a good place to look into. There's also, it's very centrally managed, you know, like bureaucracy. Yeah. So we actually, my, my wife's mom is in a, in one of those larger properties. I didn't know that side of it before she went in. And obviously we had a unpleasant experience as most folks would have having any family member in a larger property over the last two years, which I just think the smaller ones was a little bit more personable, had a little bit more flexibility and, and, and so forth for folks. And I understand, listen, I, I'm a very reasonable person. I understand if you have 200 folks, let's just say in a, in a building, it's t- tough to manage that individually. Yeah. You have to have certain things in place. But I think knowing what I know now and what I've seen, I like that residential kind of model a little bit better. Personally, other folks might still like the commercial, the larger properties, but I prefer the smaller ones. That makes sense. I'm right there with you. So can you talk now about producer's wealth? What's a cash flow coach? Can you just let us know a little bit about that? Yeah. So producer's wealth is a company that I started in 2015. It's an insurance brokerage where we help folks implement and execute a cash flow strategy built around a dividend-paying whole life insurance policy with a mutual insurance company. So it's an insurance strategy. And where it kind of fits in is it's part of a cash flow management strategy that we help you structure and and implement. And essentially, it's the second part of that framework that I I spoke about is the first part, people make their money. 
either in the capacity of employment, as a business owner, or as an investor. The second part of it is where do you put that money? Where do you allocate capital? So there's three places that a lot of folks in our network have allocated capital effectively and efficiently over the past couple of years. The first area is cash. Well, where do you put cash? We put it in life insurance like they do in family offices. So it's a very specific strategy. It's not life insurance that's sold to the general public. So as they do it in family offices, we set up these insurance policies where folks warehouse their cash. You can set up and establish a family bank essentially with these policies. I've done that personally. A lot of our clients are doing that where, let's just say, the husband, the wife, the children, everybody's got policies. And now you've over a number of years have created this family bank, which you now can borrow money from to use to invest passively into other real estate investments. And the reason why it's a, an effective way of positioning capital is you could borrow against the cash value. You use the cash value as collateral the same way that you would use equity in a, in a real estate property as collateral for a HELOC. So that's why it's effective because essentially you have money that's growing tax-free in the vehicle, but you've collateralized that and borrowed against it to go buy real estate. So your money's now working in two places simultaneously. The two other areas that folks have positioned capital, you could do the same thing. You could do the same thing with gold and silver, and you could do the same thing with crypto. We have a stable of horses approach for the, the past two years. And folks like stable of horses, yeah, you need a stable. You can't just put all of your money on one horse in times of change and disruption and so forth. So we have a workhorse, a horse and buggy onto. That's your cash. You need cash. The US dollar is still the reserve currency in the world until it's not. So you need cash and investors and always need cash if there's an opportunity that you want to capitalize on. Then the second horse is your war horse. When the bullets start flying, you want a war horse, a horse that puts its head down and keeps going. That's your gold and your silver, which is essentially insurance. And you could borrow against your gold and silver too, the same way that you do against your, your life insurance. And then the third horse is your show pony, your race horse, your fastest horse in the stable. And that's been Bitcoin, that's been crypto, where a small part of your port, a portfolio should be at least allocated to that sort of an inflation hedge. And that's why we've seen it run crazy and run at very, very high speeds over the past two years because of all of the money creation in the economy. But essentially, that's where Producers Wealth comes in. Is It's a cash flow management strategy that you put together and just position assets effectively so that you can maximize the efficiency of both of them. Life insurance and real estate in, in the example that I, that I used previously. And we do that across 50 states. It's all virtual. We started in 2015 virtual. Believe it, it was or not, it wasn't easy like it is today. It was a different yeah. concept consulting with folks virtually. I think we started with Skype and then we eventually switched to Zoom. But we help folks in all 50 states implement this cash flow management strategy to just increase efficiency in their personal business and their investment economies. Yeah, I think that's great. We've had a lot of conversations in, in our left field investors community about be your own bank, cash value, life insurance. And it really is powerful. You know, I, I use it to invest in different syndications where I'm getting two returns on the same dollar. And then when those refinance or sell, then it, it just helps the snowball grow. What do you say to people who go out and Google whole life insurance and they find out what a monstrosity it is on Google? But then you're in a community like ours or in yours, and everybody's using it because it is so effective. So how do you how do you communicate that to people that, hey, you know, if you, if you really dig into it, 
it's something that'll help you overall, but you can't just Google it and say, oh, that's a scam. Yeah. So there's an every asset clause. There's a way that the 1% or right now the 0.01% do things and then the majority of the public. And unfortunately, there's a way that the majority of public are sold things versus how the 1% and the 0.01% are sold things. So let's just say there's a lot of critics about, very vocal critics about whole life insurance, for example. Everybody's heard Dave Ramsey and Susie Orman and so forth. And by the way, I agree with most of the things that they say about it, because most of the things that they say about it talks about the flawed design, that it's not structured correctly, yada, 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 the agents being a little bit greedy and all that kind of stuff. Completely agree with everything that they say and why they don't like it, because that is essentially how insurance and specifically whole life insurance is sold to the public. That's how it's done. But what they don't tell you, and if you want to educate someone, you have to know the good, the bad, and the ugly. What they don't share with their audiences, if Dave really wants to educate his audience, he's essentially just marketing to his audience. If he wants to educate his audience, he would also say, listen, I don't like it. And here's the reasons why I don't like it. Again, I agree with them on all of those. But why do banks and corporations warehouse cash in life insurance? Why do all of these CEOs and these key employees of major corporations walk away with life insurance packages? You know, you just Google Jeffrey Immelt life insurance, you'll find it online. You know, even the University of Michigan, you go University of Michigan, Jim Harbaugh, you'll find out that his whole compensation package was structured with life insurance. This Most people will just, they, they won't read that article to begin with, they'll just skip over it, right? And then why do family offices, right? If you ask them how much life insurance do you want, their automatic response would be as much as I can get. Give me as much life insurance as, as I can get. So these are questions. Why, why do banks corporations, the wealthiest families and and family offices, we're talking $100 million net worth and and up, why would they get as much life insurance as they could legally or as an insurance company would underwrite on them? But for the rest of the public, it's terrible and it's sold as this this terrible thing that's such a scam. So it's two worlds. It's two different worlds. It's a different approach. It's a different strategy. They're sold differently, completely differently. And you can find that in every asset clause. You know, it's like, when I started out as real estate, for example, you know, I shared my story like 20 something years ago. And I would tell people, hey, I just invested in real estate. Oh, wow, that is so risky. Oh, my uncle did that and he lost everything. He was bankrupt, you know, and so forth. So it's like, why do some people become multimillionaires in real estate? Others go bankrupt. Here's one that's still hot in the oven. Why do some folks lose everything in cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin? And then there's other guys and gals buying islands in the Caribbean right now with their crypto and specifically their Bitcoin profits. Different strategies, different approach. There's a different way that they invest in that particular asset cost than the 1% or the 0.01%. That's what I would say to folks is there's a huge education uh, void when it comes to the financial world. We don't get taught anything about money in schools. And then when we become adults, same thing, because we're just marketed to, you know, we're marketed to by Wall Street. We're marketed to by folks that have one basically hammer and everything looks like a nail, you know, with, for example, the Dave Ramsey example, you know, he does great work talking to folks that have their finances in a mess. So it's not all bad. He does fantastic, he is fantastic advice for those folks. But 
if you want to educate the general public about this, you have to have the the broad conversation and share the good, the bad, and the ugly of every asset class. Yeah, I think that's really well said. You know, you have to have the right tool for the right problem. And if you're in debt and your finances are a mess, Dave Ramsey's the right tool, right? And as soon as you're done with that, as soon as you get out of debt and you're not a mess anymore, he's no longer the right tool. And that's where you got to go find somebody else. And that's what I think the power of a community like left field investors or like cash flow ninjas, you, just to have a community that can say, hey, just because your your uncle is saying this this wacky stuff, that doesn't mean it's true, right? Exactly. So yeah, that, that was just that was just really well said. I'd like to move on to our, our last question here. And it's I asked the same question. It's for you, you can't use your own, right? It's what's a great podcast that you listen to? I'm gonna put both of your podcasts in the show notes, but what do you listen to? Oh, there's several. It, it, and it all depends what I'm what I'm studying too. So for example, you know, when I immersed myself into the crypto world to invest as an investor, because there's a way that you could do that too, not just buy the coins. I really listened to Anthony Pompliano. He's got like the Pomp podcast and also Simon Dixon, which has a, a YouTube channel. He doesn't necessarily have a show, but great investor strategies. It's strategies of the 1% or the 0.01% in crypto is what those two folks share. So when I immersed myself into that and I wanted to learn everything that I needed to know about that specific space, not just to buy a coin and hope it goes up, but to actually see how the game is played by the folks that are ninjas in that space, that's what I immersed myself into. And that's that's what on. Of course, besides the Joe Rogan podcast, right? <laughs> of course. <laughs> Excellent. So listen, this has been fantastic. I really appreciate you being on a show on the show. If our listeners want to get in touch with you, what's the best way they can do that? Cashflow Ninja is where everything is at. There's over 820 podcast episodes now published. We've got a ton of content on there. We've got tools, resources, programs. And if they want to grab a copy of the book, the 21 Best Cashflow Niches, it's available on Amazon or just go to cashflowninja.com. And if you grab a copy of the book, just screenshot purchase of your receipt and send it to my team at info at cashflowninja.com. We'll give you access to the digital version of the book, the audio version of the book. And I curated a library of interviews, people discussing this. So you don't have to listen to 820 podcasts, basically. <laughs> I've curated the library discussing these niches for you. And then there's some more bonus things on there, but everything's at cashflowninja.com. Awesome. Thank you. And and I'll also put the link to the book in the show notes because it really is, it's a great way to just find new asset classes so you're not just stuck in the same ones all the time. So again, really appreciate you being here. This was a fantastic conversation. I hope we can do it again soon. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. What an interesting conversation to have with MC. He's got a lot of knowledge and it was really, really fun chatting with him. A couple of things that really struck me was the, you know, how he found find sponsors. He agrees with the approach that, that we're kind of using at Left Field Investors to find people who already know them. But if that's not, he doesn't have that, you still have to find a sponsor if you want one a new asset class. And, you know, he interviews just a bunch of different people and then he watches them. And I think that's the interesting thing. He has patience. He watches them. He checks out a few deals, talks to them again, and really just takes his time so he can get to know them. And I think that's a really powerful way to not move too quickly, but to find a new sponsor that isn't referred to you. So I appreciated that. And really, my favorite thing from the whole interview was Jomo, the joy of missing out. And that can apply to more than just 
sponsors or finances or, you know, investing. That could be anything. If you just take the time to enjoy something that you're missing out on, rather than be afraid and fear that you're going to miss out on something, it's just a completely different perspective. So I'm going to try to incorporate more Jomo into my life. And then lastly, listen to him talk about life insurance. And I like that he used Dave Ramsey, who he gets a bad rap, I think, in some of the uh, investing circles that I run in because he's just anti everything except for get out of debt. But if you're deep in debt and your finances are a mess, you need a guy like him. But then as soon as you're not in that situation anymore, you need to stop taking his advice and maybe find other people who are rising up in a similar position as you find a community, something that can help you understand where you're going next because you don't always need the same tool. And just because you have a hammer that doesn't make everything a nail. And I think that's something that we really need to think about. And so, wow, what a great conversation. I really appreciated that. MC is someone I'm going to be following. I have been following and I'm going to continue and hopefully we'll have another chat with him again. That's all for today. We'll see you next time in the left field. Thanks for hanging out in left field with us today. If you're interested in becoming a left fielder, you can find us on the World Wide Web at www.leftfieldinvestors.com or you can send me an email, jim at leftfieldinvestors.com. Thank you for listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. If you enjoy the show, please go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and rate and review the show. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Nothing said on the show should be considered financial advice. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by Passive Investing from Left Field and Left Field Investors. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.